0: This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Ken Fichtler, founder and CEO of Gaze, a Montana-based startup that recently launched a cannabis impairment detection product.
1: Organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the United States Department of Transportation, many, many research universities have all come out and said, hey, don't try to establish some THC limit as a way to police impaired driving because it's fundamentally nonsensical. It doesn't
0: work that way. Ken served as chief business development officer for four years during the Bullock administration and is a seasoned vet of the Montana entrepreneurship scene. Ken, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do?
1: Sure. So I grew up in Florence, Montana, which is a little town in the Bitterroot Valley. Uh, My mom was a potter, so she worked with ceramics and uh, had her work in galleries and such. And my dad was a recreation manager for the Bureau of Land Management.
0: So you decided to go study business over the mountains, Montana State University. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about that choice.
1: Yeah, I sort of followed a girlfriend at the time Mm -hmm. to uh, Montana State and started in engineering actually and found I hated engineering. I wanted to invent and I wanted to create new things. And so that was not sort of in line with what I wanted to do, I found. And so I I, I liked the creative aspect of business Mm -hmm. and just thought I would jump into that. I had uh, a couple of professors that I uh, met early on in my collegiate career that sort of mentored me and um, they were both in the business department. So I ended up. Switching over to that and took over the International Business Club was uh, one of my first forays into leadership, and uh, ran that for a couple of years.
0: Yeah, and at what point in this process did you develop an interest in entrepreneurship?
1: Pretty early on. I really love, as I said, the creative aspect of of everything, and so entrepreneurship looked like a way that I could create something brand new, bring it into the world, solve interesting problems, and uh, you know, there's you know potential large financial rewards attached to it. So yeah. that's all really interesting. And early on, you were involved in some startups, some startups of your own. Talk about those experiences. Fairly shortly after I graduated from college, I founded my first company, which was a a marketing firm and uh, learned a ton about that. I think I learned more starting that than I did in my entire time in college. But the timing was very challenging. I started that in 2008, ran it until mid-2009. That was a tough time to be getting a new marketing services company at a time where like every
0: firm was cutting its marketing budget. We, you
1: know, we, we had a handful of clients, but ultimately couldn't make it work. Um, so learned a ton, uh, don't regret that experience. Although it was extremely painful at the time from there, I hopped into, uh, technology. I, I found that I really enjoyed, um, the technology side of, you know, building Mm -hmm. websites and things like that that we were doing. Um, so went from that into building web and mobile apps, um, that company did really well. My founder and I ended up parting ways, um, a couple of years into that business. And, um, I went to work for a, a company that did, um, infrared optics manufacturing okay.
0: in Bozeman. Super. And at some point in this process, you you land a position in the Bullock administration yeah, um, running economic development. Talk about that opportunity. How did it come to be? And why did you say yes to go from being an entrepreneur to sure. being a public servant?
1: Sure. So at the time I was, um, I, as I said, I'd gone to work for this infrared optics manufacturing business, was sort of one of the people that they had brought in to do the turnaround on that company. And so when that company became stabilized, my interest waned a little bit, and I started looking around for what was next. And um, so I founded Bozeman with another guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I started a, a nonprofit called Startup Bozeman that was trying to help startups get off the ground. Did some angel investing, um, and then one of the things I did sort of towards the tail end of that um, experience in, in that infrared optics company was I was part of, I was one of the founding members of an organization called Open Source Montana that was advocating for certain candidates that we thought would be most um, advantageous from a, a kind of tech entrepreneur perspective in mm-hmm. the state. Political and, uh, candidates. Correct. Yes. And, and in a nonpartisan fashion. Um, so we were you know, trying to be very objective and looking at who we thought was going to be the best um, candidate for, for the state and for the job. And so we ended up advocating for Bullock. Mm-hmm. When he was reelected, he reached out to uh, that group and basically said, "Hey, I'm looking to make a change in economic development, and okay. do you think uh, any of you might know someone who could be interested?" Right. And I didn't even, you know, give it a second thought. But then one of my mentors was like, "Hey, Ken, you should think about this. This could be a really interesting opportunity." And I was like, "Well, you know, I I'd, I'd never anticipated getting into government at this point of my career, yeah. but." Yeah, it did look like an interesting opportunity. So I went up and I uh, chatted with um, Steve Bullock and his chief of staff, and it it looked really fascinating. It looked kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime sort of opportunity. So he offered me the job, and I took it and moved up to Helena. started right in the midst of the
0: 2017 legislative session. Right. So has to be a, a massive just change on yeah. so many dimensions. You go from, you know, the entrepreneurial space where you're need to be agile, the stuff is changing every day, moving really fast, sometimes maybe too fast to, you know, our view of government. I I mean, I guess jumping into a session, things are moving fast. Things move fast in the session, yeah. And the other interesting thing about my
1: position, I was the director of economic development or director of the governor's office of economic development, which is really a a subset of the governor's office. And Mm so I had quite a bit of leeway, actually. I was not sort of bogged down in rules and regulations like I think maybe. State agencies are, so I definitely had enough rope to hang myself with. And uh, Governor Bullock was really interested, I think, to see what this young guy would do with this
0: office. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so, what did you do? Like, what is, yeah. what is the jobs? Like, what is your charge in that role? And how did you act on that charge?
1: Sure. So the charge is basically to uh, expand economic opportunity in the state mm-hmm. broadly. What I did when I came in is I really tried to take a holistic look at like what are the things that touch this job, and the answer is like almost everything. It's, it. it's almost overwhelming when yeah. you start something like that. So I saw my job ultimately as as sort of cost reduction. So how can economic cost be reduced, and then also economic expansion? Mm-hmm. So that's you know I think where traditional economic development typically lives. And so I I really focused on a couple areas. One was creating more sort of really good-paying jobs in the state, you know, and, and there are many sectors in which that can take place, but I focused on value-added agriculture, technology, uh, outdoor recreation, were, were a couple of the spaces that I found a lot of opportunity in. We recruited new businesses to the state, so mm-hmm. we were the kind of the state agency that was charged with leading those efforts, and uh, we were extremely successful doing that. And then the other was kind of workforce preparedness, and so I wanted to look down the road, perhaps further than was comfortable for a lot of people, and think about what are the, what are the coming industries that we need to be focused on and, and what are the things that are going to be uh, less in demand that we should you know, be aware the, that are going to phase out yeah, and we want to yeah. you know, be sure our university systems and, and other training centers are uh, aware of these things mm-hmm. and, and training people into the appropriate positions.
0: So give us just a quick summary of what you think those macro trends are. Like, I'm curious, as, as somebody who works <laughs> in the university system and tries to help yeah. students be prepared for those opportunities and maybe not locked in on the opportunities that might uh, disappear, where do you think we're going? I think that one of the interesting and useful things to
1: do when you're looking far out into the future about you know job prospects is to think about what the intersections of various disciplines are. So you can apply, say, Biology and computer science. What's the intersection of biology and computer science? And you know, at the end of the day, like DNA and biology is a big data problem. And so there's a huge intersection there. And I think there's huge opportunities between people into these big data sort of problems as they relate to biology. Another area that I I thought a lot about was AI. And I was uh, at the time thinking, okay, well, we've got you know tons of really smart people working on self-driving cars. There are very achievable self-driving vehicle like milestones that we could have so, so for example it's it's crazy to me that we still don't have automated railways like these are two-dimensional things right yeah. you're going straight in a line so i at the time was thinking like ai is going to really Um, have a huge impact on on the future of work. And I think that's correct, but I was actually focused in the wrong areas. I didn't see these large language models coming, and I don't know that that many people did. Like, I thought that was going to be a really hard thing. So let's
0: talk about Gaze, this new venture um, that—actually, when did you launch Gaze? I launched Gaze as soon as I left the Bullock administration. So uh, we incorporated in January of 21. So what is Gaze? And let's start with what problem are you all trying to solve? Yeah. So in the
1: uh, Governor's Office of Economic Development, one of the things that I was looking at that I thought could be extremely economically impactful to the state, it was cannabis legalization. So at the time, Montana was a medical-only state, Mm -hmm. and I thought it was extremely likely we would become a recreational state if uh, the ballot initiative was to come forth. Of course, that has since come to pass. So I wanted to understand what's going to happen. What are the you know what are the economic opportunities? Yeah. What are the um, challenges that are come going to come with this? So I talked with counterparts in states that legalized. I talked with law enforcement, business owners, and um, you know legislators. And the thing that struck me most about this was you know of course there's these you know really huge tax revenue opportunities, and it's only sector of the economy that's getting created almost. But there was no device to check for impairment, which struck yes. me as completely insane. You know. Cannabis is an extremely impairing substance, and to not have a way to check for impairment really risks, I think, not only the safety of our roads and safety of our workplaces, but the long-term success of cannabis legalization sure. at all. Yeah, if something was bad was to happen, you know, people are going to point to this problem and say, "Well, that's the problem. We need to roll this back." And so that struck me as a really important safety problem to solve, um, also a huge market opportunity. And as I as I learned more and more about how cannabis impairment is, how it manifests in the body, what are the kind of indicators
0: that happen, it became really clear to me that nobody was doing it right. Before we get to how you're doing it, how you're detecting impairment, do do we know how big a problem impairment is? I'm thinking of like the the equivalent to an intoxicated driver. Yeah, but there's other areas where it, it, it's an issue as well, right? Definitely.
1: One of the things that's interesting about cannabis is I think most people, you know, broadly agree it's not okay to like drink at work or drink while you're driving. But sure. For heavy cannabis users, the the same is not necessarily true. There there's this broad misconception that it's okay or it's safe to be to smoke cannabis and drive or smoke cannabis and and go to work. The statistics show us it is not. Like it is radically more uh, dangerous to be consuming cannabis and driving than it is to drive sober. Okay, It is not as dangerous as driving drunk, but we're not talking about comparing those two as, as apples and apples. This is something that is objectively more dangerous by a factor of about two than driving sober. And so it's extremely important that we solve this problem.
0: Before Gaze comes along, like how do we detect cannabis impairment?
1: So the status quo really for cannabis is that there, there is no like simple roadside test for cannabis impairment. THC lasts a really long time in the body. It's called lipophilic. So it binds to fat cells in the body and it's slowly released over time. There's also been many studies that have tried to quantify some amount of active THC in the body that can be correlated with impairment and all have failed. So what that means is that you cannot simply measure THC in the body and derive the impairment being experienced. And so organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the United States Department of Transportation, many, many research universities have all come out and said, hey, don't try to establish some THC limit as a way to police impaired driving because it's fundamentally nonsensical. It doesn't work that way. So the need seems obvious. What is your solution here? As I started looking at the research that was out there, I I really tried to go back to first principles and understand what are the things that we know are working today? Is there a way we know we can check for cannabis impairment today? And, And the answer was these drug recognition expert eye tests are reasonably accurate ways to determine whether or not someone is impaired on cannabis or other types of drug And each drug category has a unique way in which it manifests in eye movement changes. Okay. And so I was like that's super interesting. I wonder, you know, how could we how could we do these better? How could we remove the subjectivity and human error from the equation? And the solution I came up with was what if we put them in a VR headset where we could precisely replicate the light conditions and the eye movement that we need in order to do these tests. Okay. So virtual reality virtual headset. Virtual reality headset. Okay. Yeah. And then I was like, "Well, okay, that that would work, but how do we get data out of that?" And so I was like, "I wonder if there are headsets that have eye tracking sensors." And sure enough, there are. At the time, there were there were uh, just a couple, and now there are more uh, headsets that have really high quality eye tracking mm-hmm. sensors. And so what, what the conception that I um, had was, I wonder if we could automate these tests in a VR headset, capture data using these eye tracking sensors. Right. And then evaluate that data on the back end using machine learning to understand whether or not someone is exhibiting these signs and symptoms of impairment. We'll be back to our conversation with Ken
0: Fichtler after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Meg Oliver, CBS News correspondent, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Ken Fickler, founder and CEO of Gaze, a startup trying to figure out cannabis impairment detection. So, great idea. How do you then take that hypothesis and validate it? You know, I started by trying to watch everything
1: I could about how cannabis works in the eyes and and- there's just frankly not great data out sure. there about um, about this. There are some studies that were there were had sort of poked at the issue but didn't do a great job. There were um, you know this this sort of long-standing history of use by the law enforcement community of using drug recognition experts to try to discover and classify impairment and so I talked with cops basically and I said, hey, are, are these things real like how do they work? Tell me all about them. Uh, I found the training manual online, so I read the whole training manual basically just tried to consume everything I could. And I really felt like I got to comfort that these were reasonably accurate, that we could make them more accurate using this idea that I'd had, and that uh, this was something that was technically achievable with current
0: technology. How do you then get data to then go to law enforcement and say, hey, this thing works better than that human you've trained to sit in that seat? Well, Montana tipped into recreational
1: cannabis. And so we were able right. to capture some small amount of data using that. But you know, the reality is we needed a ton of data. Yeah. Based on sort of the statistical analysis that we'd done on our small amount of data, we needed about 350 participants in order to be pretty confident that we could do this sure. and, and do it accurately. So that meant a clinical trial and not just a clinical trial, but the largest clinical trial that had ever been done on cannabis we were going to have to do. And
0: we should say that like administering cannabis to a subject for a research subject population is a, is a challenge. It, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's legal recreationally in Montana, but it's still a schedule one exactly um, yeah. substance yeah. at the federal level. Right. And
1: so anytime you want to do research on cannabis in the United States, you have to still get a DEA license. You have to buy, mm-hmm. you have to buy your product, your cannabis from the federal government Via At the time, it was only University of Mississippi, and their cannabis was about 6% THC. So fundamentally not representative of what is being consumed on the open market. Mm-hmm. And so the answer that we came up with was, well, we have to go to another country. So we ended up going to Canada. I found a, a great research partner there, and we hired them to basically run this clinical trial. And so we you know, went through all the appropriate regulatory steps in Canada, Health Canada approval, ethics approval, all that. And uh, we had our participants consume recreationally available cannabis that they had purchased. And um, we basically measured their eyes when they came in sober and then got them high. And we measured their high, their eyes four additional times over the course of their high. And so what we created is the world's largest data set by far of cannabis impaired eye movement. Mm-hmm. And what did that show you? It showed us that the Indicators of impairment that we are looking for certainly exist, and we can certainly discover them using automated methods Mm -hmm. such as statistical analysis or machine learning. And so we've now built those algorithms out, and they're working great. What we also found, though, was a lot of new indicators of impairment that I believe are completely unknown to science. Okay, And so we're we're crafting some academic papers on those right now, and I'm really excited to bring some of these to light. We actually found better signal in other parts of the testing process than we were supposed
0: to based on what, what law enforcement currently looks for. Interesting. Now you've got data, but you've also got a question of, I, I assume you just can't take this data and go to you know the Montana State Police and say, okay, buy my headset. Yeah. There are some constraints on what law enforcement uh, at various levels can, can contract with, right?
1: Definitely. So there are a couple different layers of approvals that we're still frankly working on. The first is the International Association of Chiefs of Police has a task force basically that looks at new technology that would be deployed into the DRE process. And so we've talked with many members of this task force. They're reviewing it, and hopefully we'll get to a good outcome sometime soon, although they move sort of notoriously slowly, so yeah. it could take a while. Uh, the other side is is uh, Food and Drug Administration mm-hmm. um, has not typically regulated impairment detection devices, it's sort of a new category of thing, It looks like in order to sell to law enforcement for use in the roadside, uh, we'll have to have uh, FDA approval for
0: that. And so this is a process we're just beginning. Yeah. And as an entrepreneur trying to get something off the ground, I mean, you've got a a hardware question that's somewhat solved. You've got software, you've got data collection, FDA approval. Like this sounds like a venture with a long runway and that's pretty capital intensive. How have you confronted that? basically what I set out to do early on in the company
1: was raise some capital for this because mm-hmm. I'm not going to self-finance, you know, a, a lot of money in order to do this clinical trial and build the product out. I, I tried doing that. I frankly failed pretty hard for the first couple months. Wow. Um,
0: it was... Even though you're pretty networked in that community. Of, I'm of, super of, networked. Of venture funding, <laughs> angel investors here yeah. in the state of Montana and yeah. beyond. This was a hard problem. It's,
1: it's you know... Uh, business type that doesn't look familiar. So a lot of venture funds are just like, it's not B2B SaaS. Yeah, I don't that's out it. of our lane. Yeah. And then uh, for other investors, you know, you're, you're talking about doing a clinical trial. You're talking about government approvals, selling into government, brand new product category, yeah. brand new product type that mm-hmm. has never been developed before. So there's a lot of these risk factors that sort of all compound being like, wow, this looks really scary and hard. And yeah, sorry, but we're out. So it took me a long time to raise capital for this. I ended up raising $1.2 million. We closed on that in uh, March of 22. Okay. And that was from, you know, a handful of angels who I, I think were brave and saw the vision. And I'm eternally grateful to for, you know, helping
0: bring this thing to light. Super. So you have some runway. You have, you know, this, this law enforcement customer base that involves a bunch of hurdles but there are other customers yeah uh, insurance companies uh, corporations talk about some of the other customer segments and, and yeah. where you're at with those with those groups
1: so there are many industries that have these sorts of uh, workers and examples would be construction manufacturing oil and gas energy utilities uh, transportation logistics shipping mm-hmm. etc what we are doing right now is taking our product to these customers and looking for the ones that are sort of tech forward and excited about this or experiencing extreme pain from uh, cannabis-impaired workers right. and selling the product into those sectors.
0: And so you launched the product relatively recently, right? Right. And you're able to sell into these segments. What are your most promising segments to date? It's been interesting. Uh,
1: You know, my theories about who's going to be the buyer of this thing has changed pretty dramatically over time. And, uh, you know, I started, I I still want to solve this law enforcement problem. I think that's the most important thing. Um, And we'll get there. But uh, what's become clear is we're going to have to have some intermediate steps before we get there. And so, yeah, selling into these commercial customers is certainly the right first step. Um, And so what's emerged actually is that drug testing services companies are the ones that really seem to, one, understand the product and the problem that mm-hmm. we're trying to solve.
0: They face this every single day. So this is a company that like a business contracts with to do right. drug testing right. on their workforce. Yep, exactly. Okay.
1: Um, and so they typically contract with many dozens of businesses sure. or hundreds or thousands and say, you know, we'll deal with any reasonable suspicion. So somebody they think is impaired on the job, they can come test them. They can do some random surveillance type testing. They can do uh, pre-hire testing, things like that. Okay. So these companies really intimately understand the problem that we're trying to solve. They get asked every single day by their clients, what are we going to do about cannabis impairment? And they have to every single day say, well, we don't know. There's no product that exists for this yet. And so they really are excited and understand what we're trying to do and why. Um, And so our product being um, kind of a rapid portable screening product is also really useful for them. It's kind of a whole new business segment that they can spin out. So really what we're creating, I think, that's interesting is this whole new way to think about drug testing within an employment situation. Sure. So it's distinctly retroactive right now where you're testing for the presence of a substance typically after an incident happens. Yeah, after something bad has happened on right. the job. Yeah. And so with gaze, you can screen for impairment and know if someone is fit for duty before they even start for the day and do so rapidly and with no additional
0: testing fee. Just from an ethical standpoint, I mean, what you're describing could be described as a big brother or sort of, uh, you know, um, surveillance by the state, etc. So how do you kind of address that? Not necessarily criticism, but that bit of pushback. It's definitely a concern. And that's something that, you know, I
1: wrestle with every day. I don't want this to turn into a a mechanism for surveillance or for precluding someone from from living their life and in fact I, I think it does the opposite so the way i've come to comfort with it is that with gaze someone can go and responsibly use substances on their own time as long as they come to work and are ready to work and, are, and can work safely we're not capturing anything that is sort of intrinsic to the person so we're not capturing blood or urine or saliva or whatever we're not capturing breath. We are strictly looking at eye movement and how your eye movement can change as a result of impairment. And so this is something that, you know, is captured on video 100 times a day and you don't even realize it. Okay, We're
0: just taking a closer look. Ken, this business is fascinating on so many levels. We've talked about the challenges to getting it off the ground. We've talked about kind of the ethical quandaries and, and legal quandaries that you're kind of navigating. In the near term, how are you kind of defining success? What's the next milestone that you're shooting for? Good question. Having just launched, I you know the
1: the biggest thing that we're driving towards right now is our first sort of handful of customers. We've okay. got you know we've got our first handful, I guess. So we're we're going for kind of the next tier, and it you know it looks like they're going to be. Companies that are in all of our target sectors, which is really exciting. Awesome. You know, there's not a single target sector that is not interested in what we're doing and doesn't see this as a good potential um, tool to to help keep their workplace safe. So that's that feels incredibly good. Super. The challenge right now, I think, is you know this being a brand new product category and a brand new use case for uh, trying to keep a workplace safe. How do we? answer all of the you know myriad legal questions around how it can be used in each jurisdiction um and do so in a timely fashion so that we can actually drive revenue and build
0: this company yeah how do you make it go It's fascinating, Ken. I applaud you for taking on a hard problem with a bunch of public welfare implications. If folks want to learn more about Gaze, potentially if they're interested in becoming a customer, or I'm sure you're probably looking for for employees in this great state of Montana, where would you point them online? Our website is gaze, G-A-I-Z-E dot A-I. And you
1: can find us on all social media uh, at Gaze Safety. Super. Well, Ken... Good luck, and thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UAM alums Michelle and Lauren Hanson. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Healy Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Nies is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.